Let's pray. Lord, we have just asked you in song, as we prayed in song, to open up our eyes and show us yourself. Lord, we're thankful that we don't wait for some audible voice or some visual demonstration for you to show yourself. For you have shown yourself in your word. And Lord, to be clear, when we ask you to show yourself, we are asking you to help us to discern all of the glorious wonders of who you are in your book, the Bible. Father, if we're asking you to show us who you are, then would you help us as we've prayed to see, Father, that we can indeed learn of you and know you and find you and see your sweet character, Father, when we take this book seriously. Help us, I pray, Lord, to enjoy relationship with you through the wonderful means that you have provided. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am absolutely convinced that reading is a very good thing. It informs our minds. It strengthens our comprehension. It enhances our analytic abilities. It stimulates our memories and it broadens our imaginations. I cannot commend reading to you enough. And reading the Bible is actually imperative for Christian living. God gave us his word in a book, 66 books to be precise, and it is a book which is to be read by his people that they might both know him and enjoy his marvelous work of salvation. But is simply reading the Bible enough? If the God of the universe has given us a book, then is it ever wise to approach that book given to us by the God of the universe with haste and slightness? And if we read God's word with a hurried casualness, does it really accomplish all that much lasting good in our lives? Or do our minds and hearts need a deeper, richer level of focus, a deeper consideration in order to internalize and acutely apply what God has communicated. What I'm asking is, along with our scripture reading, do we also need to meditate on scripture? The aim of this series is to equip you to practice communion with God through Bible meditation and prayer. And as we have learned, communion with God is receiving God's loving communication of himself to us while joyfully responding to him through our union with Jesus. 
And this is now the third of six sermons on communion with God. And today we consider the first of two vital ways, not the only ways, but the first of two vital ways that we go about experiencing communion with God. And that is Bible meditation. Bible meditation is essential for communion with God. I would assert that followers of Jesus need to commune with God daily through the discipline of Bible meditation. Let me define it for us. Because in our day, as I'm sure you are aware, there are all forms of meditation. Much of which, I would say, you should take and discard very quickly. But with regard to biblical meditation, let me define it. Bible meditation is receiving God's biblical revelation with the careful consideration of one's spirit-directed mind for the purpose of enjoyed relationship with God, life application, and focused prayer. So, Bible meditation is receiving God's biblical revelation with the careful consideration of one's spirit-directed mind for the purpose of enjoyed relationship with God, life application, and focused prayer. I don't mean go into a room somewhere, hold your hands palm up, and wait while you clear your minds of all thinking. I mean go into that room by yourself with your hands holding a Bible on your lap and fill your minds with the truth of God. The very opposite of this world would say, I am suggesting you do. Don't loosen your minds of thought. Fill your minds with superior thought. That's what I'm talking about today. If Christians are to walk by the Spirit in order to overcome the desires of the flesh, as we saw last week in Galatians. And if walking by the Spirit demands living and growing in faith, as I tried to make clear last week in the book of Galatians, and if living and growing in faith includes an ongoing application of gospel truth to one's mind then believers must reflect upon the truth of God's word throughout their days. So if we're to walk by the Spirit, if we're to see its effect, then we have to have his truth guide us throughout our days. Today, we will consider Psalm 1 in order to see the importance of Bible meditation for each believer as they commune with God. And next week... We're going to build off of this message by learning how to better practice Bible meditation in our own devotional lives. So today is going to be the exposition. We're going to see what God's Word has to say about Bible meditation and its import for our lives. And next week, we're going to learn a little bit more about how to actually do Bible meditation because it's not quite as cut and dry as some might think. There are some helpful steps that can be employed to help us to do this in a way that doesn't seem so intimidating. That's next week. But Psalm chapter 1. This is the very first psalm of 150 psalms. It's the first psalm in the Psalter. 
And it's what one commentator calls a faithful doorkeeper confronting those who would be in the congregation of the righteous. So it's a doorkeeper that opens up the door to all of those who want to be part of the righteous path. And the divine truth of God's word lies at the very center of this. Now this psalm, if you look carefully at verse 1, it begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the man. Though perhaps more helpfully, the word could be translated as happy, which best communicates the psalmist's intention here. Happy is the man, or happy is the woman. This word blessed, it refers to the joy, the happiness, the delight that comes from a life that is lived in fellowship with God. This world tells us that delight and joy and happiness come apart from God. God says no, happiness, joy, and delight come from a fellowship with him. And understand, my friends, this joy is far more than a fleeting feeling which would make it highly susceptible to the ups and downs of life. This isn't that momentary euphoria that we sometimes get when we get the new item that we've purchased or when the baby arrives. This is, this is not the momentary thing. This is a lasting type of a joy. This joy is a state of, it is a state of blessed peace which is connected to the Lord's affectionate relationship with his people. In fact, this blessedness is vitally connected to the Lord's intimate knowledge of his people. Look at verse 6, how he ends out this psalm. He says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God's knowledge of his people goes beyond mere information about them. Because in contrast to the wicked, it actually includes a genuine concern for them and even an identification with them. God doesn't simply know his people objectively, but he knows them subjectively, intimately, relationally. He doesn't just know me in the sense that he knows my name, he knows who I am, who my parents were, who I'm married to, what my family is, where I work, what I do, my background, how I was created. He doesn't just know objective facts about me. He knows me. There's an intimacy involved. There's a relationship was there. He doesn't just know things about me. He knows my way, my path. He knows all about me. In fact, God knows me better than I know myself. He knows me better than anyone has ever known me. With God, I am known. And God knows his children, not just in an objective way, but in a subjective way. He knows us in that he loves us. The blessedness spoken of here by the psalmist is a delight found in relationship with God that is through his word. In verse 1, the psalmist urges his readers to be blessed. First of all, by not walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of scoffers. This is a reference to the walk of life, which is described throughout this psalm and throughout the psalms. Walking... In the counsel of the wicked is the most basic form of wrong living as it listens to and heeds the advice of faithless, wicked people. And worse than this, 
Worse than walking is standing in the way of sinners, where one goes further than simply heeding the sinful advice of others and actually becomes firm in position, entrenched in a sinful way of living. Not just hearing it and doing it, but becoming strong in it, entrenched in it, standing in it. And worst of all yet is sitting in the seat of scoffers, where one does not simply live the same way as the wicked, but actually begins to take part in their evil deliberations and leadership. Not just performing the sin, but beginning to devise ways for sin and encouraging others to sin. But in contrast to this walk of sin, the psalmist declares the man blessed in verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There is a stark contrast between those who think they're blessed by walking in the way of wickedness and those who truly are blessed by walking in the way of the word. The law of the Lord here in verse 2 means more than simply the legal demands which are found in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Oftentimes those first five books are called the law of Moses, But the psalmist here refers to something more than that. It essentially refers here, as it does in many other places in the Old Testament, to all good instruction in the way of the Lord. So it is best understood as the law of the Lord, simply as the teaching of the Lord, which is found in the Lord's word, the Bible. So when you read the statement, his delight is in the law of the Lord, you can simply say, his delight is in the word of the Lord. But notice carefully in verse 2, notice very carefully in verse 2, this blessed man and this blessed woman does not approach God's teaching casually or listlessly because on his law he meditates day and night. And that's an expression that's commonly used to mean he's meditating on God's word constantly. He hears it. He consumes it. It's in his mind. It fills his heart. He walks through his day, and it's there. God's word is there in his mind as he goes through life. Morning to evening, God's word is saturating his day. This approach to God's word is marked by a deeper reflection upon it that grows out of a delight for it, and a desire to know it and to follow it. It is not an approach to God's word that reads a little bit for 10 minutes in the morning, forgets it, and goes on and do all the things you really want to do. This is the approach to God's word that takes it, consumes it, ingests it, processes it, applies it, and it sticks with that man or that woman throughout the day because they love it and they know its value. This is not a simple reading of God's word. This is the ingesting of God's word. It's the consumption of it. I fear we live in a day when American Christianity are really big into saying how important God's word is when very few actually ingest it and process it and live in light of it and have it drive their days. Sidney Gradanis, who is uh, an Old Testament scholar and teacher that I trust and appreciate, he gives a helpful explanation of this word meditate. He writes, the word translated as meditate is literally to recite aloud or to murmur. 
In those days, people did not read silently as we do today. They read aloud. Think of Jews reading scripture at the wailing wall or in their synagogues, murmuring the words while bowing whenever they come across the name of the word Lord. So to meditate on God's law means to read God's word and reflect and act on its meaning. As we read, we should ask ourselves, what is God saying here about himself and what has he done for us? And are we living in accordance with God's teachings? Are we living for ourselves or for God? Perhaps you've seen images of the Wailing Wall in Israel where Jewish men will be at the wall and they will be rocking back and forth before the wall. Have you seen those images? What they're doing is they believe that God's word is not something to simply be read, but they want their whole being to be involved in the process. They want God's word to be so intricate to their lives that they want their whole being to be in it. They want to bow. They want to move. They want God's word to be audibly stated. And they want to keep it with them. They are serious about it. It might seem strange to some, but they believe that's a step they take to have God's word processed well into their minds and hearts. If only they had the same. Well, the blessed or joyful, happy, delighted man or woman finds delights in the teachings of God and Scripture as they reflect upon it deeply and apply it carefully to their lives. This should convict us. This should convict us. Some would say, don't put conviction upon me, we live under grace. My friend, part of living under grace is feeling the conviction that God gives. Like a good parent who says, don't go that way, do go this way. Hey, you're making this mistake, instead go this way. So his word convicts us like a sharp two-edged sword. It divides and it points us where to go. His word tells us to meditate on scripture. Not read a verse and then move on forgetting all about it. But having his word consume us, become a part of us, to the point that as we go through life, it informs our lives. Yes, to do this means there will need to be radical changes in the human life. We cannot live like the world if his word is going to impact us like this. The words of the 19th century pastor and writer William Plummer pointedly convey the necessity of this kind of deep reflection. He wrote... Like prayer, meditation is to be pursued day and night, not reluctantly, but joyously, not merely in God's house or on the Lord's day, but whenever other duties do not forbid. He who would be truly blessed must become a student of Scripture. I fully understand not everyone in this room is a pastor, called to be a pastor, gifted to be a teacher of God's word, fully understand it. But if you are a, a servant of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to be a student of Scripture. To learn it at whatever level you're at, to go to the next level, to keep taking in his word, ingesting it, growing in it, that you might be more like the God who saved you. And a key result of this joyful Bible reflection is the blessing of spiritual fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. He declares that the one who meditates on Scripture, who ingests it and carefully considers it, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. 
So this is an individual who is in contrast to the wicked of this world, who are like chaff that is blown by the wind into judgment. Look at verses 4 through 6. The wicked are not so, he says, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you were to go to the Midwest about end of October, November, perhaps early December, depending upon what the weather was like, you would see fields that had been mowed down by combines. But you would also, on windy days, see chaff blowing around in the fields. The remainder that's there, the stuff that has no usefulness, the dead leaves that have been discarded, whirling around in the fields, and the dust and the debris that is all around. It is the remnant of the harvest. It is nothing good, nothing useful. Well, God compares those who do not follow his word with meditation as those who are like chaff blown away by the wind unto judgment. There's a uselessness to them. They don't have any spiritual value to them. And there's a warning here against that kind of living because it says in verse 5 that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There is a judgment for those who have been told God's word, the God of the universe has declared himself to you in a book. And those who say, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to take the counsels of this world. There is a judgment for those who have made that decision. But the one who happily communes with God through Bible meditation prospers by bearing spiritual fruit in his or her life under God himself. This blessed person, verse 3 tells us, is like a tree planted by streams of water. A tree that's off on its own can quickly die and produce a little good. But if you take a tree and you put it by a flowing stream, it will be strong, it will be nourished, it will be able to bear fruit. So is the one who has God's word as a very significant part of their lives, driving even their lives. This blessed one also yields fruit in his or her season. Like that tree, there will be times of great fruit, great plenty, other times of less, but there will be much fruit over the, over the different seasons of life because of the nourishment of the river that is thereby. And this blessed one's leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. Unlike the chaff, this one does not die and become useless. This one becomes strong and prosperous in the sense that this one grows in God-likeness. One commentator writes that this phrase, its fruit in its season, emphasizes both the distinctiveness and the quiet growth of the product. For the tree is no mere channel, piping the water unchanged from one place to another, but a living organism which absorbs it to produce in due course something new and delightful, proper to its kind and its time. And the proper produce of this tree certainly includes the spiritual fruit of maturity before God, just as Paul said last week in Galatians 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A tree that is planted by God's word, that absorbs in God's word on a constant basis is a tree that bears that kind of fruit. Christian, do you want to grow in your walk with God? Christian, do you want to grow in holiness? 
Christian, do you want to learn to resist sin and walk according to God's plan for your life? Christian, do you want to begin to love other people and put other people's needs before yourself? Christian, do you want to learn to kill off that sin that has so plagued you from so many years? Do you want to learn to do that? It begins by planting your tree right next to the source of word of God. Being there, absorbing in his word that you might grow thereby. Therefore, it is essential for Christians to commune with God through Bible meditation. As believers take delight in spirit-guided, careful reflection upon Scripture, they will find strength to reject wicked counsel, resist sinful ways, and avoid scoffing voices. How can you have the discernment to know what are those wicked voices? Take your tree and plant it by this stream of water, and you will be able to discern what are those wicked voices and be able to resist them. Furthermore, believers who do this, they will also experience blessedness in their relationship with God. A blessedness which will result in spiritual fruitfulness through the differing seasons of life. You will know what it is to walk with God and the joy of that and be able to see his work in your life. My friends, this comes with effort. God saves us by grace alone. He opens up our eyes, causing us to believe. And then throughout our Christian lives, we continue to believe as we exert ourselves in his word, in prayer, with his people, that we might grow thereby. Sanctification is a process that includes the efforts of God's people. Justification includes no efforts on the part of God's people. We believe and receive and we're forgiven. Sanctification includes our efforts to press into his word that we might grow thereby. And knowing him in this way, we begin to experience such fruit. So let's apply what we've seen here with three certainties. Three certainties. Certainty number one, there are only two ways to live on this earth. There are only two ways to live on this earth. The first way is to follow the counsel of the wicked world. This way is to hear the perspectives of those who reject God's teaching, who decide to emulate their words and their actions and then eventually oppose any word that contrasts them. They hear the way of wickedness. They begin to follow the way of wickedness. They become entrenched in wickedness. They begin to promote wickedness. This is the way of most of this world today. And this is the evil way that Jesus warned against. In fact, this is the way that every person takes until they encounter Christ in faith. This was once me, and this was once you. John 3, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Jesus' people don't come to him. They don't come to his light because they love the darkness. They don't come to him for truth. They don't come to him for his wisdom because they love their own way. They love their sin. They want to walk in the ways of the wicked. They want to stand. They want to listen to the scoffers and become a scoffer. They want that way because all of us are in rebellion against God from birth. This is the path that loves sin and seeks to hold on to it because it appears to bring delight. But the end of this way is judgment, as verses 5 and 6 tell us. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
But at the end of verse 6, it says the way of the wicked will perish. This is the first way. In most people on this earth, this is the way that they have chosen. But the second way is to follow the counsel of God. This way is to boldly reject the counsel of this world and instead let God's good counsel from God's good word fill the mind, transform the heart, and impact the life from the inside out. It's an approach that says, I need something, someone else to speak into me, to transform me because I'm helpless. When the gospel is understood and realized, you see that God has done that in Jesus Christ. And then from that moment on, there's this constant expression of, God, I need you to keep speaking into my life and giving me your wisdom so that I can walk according to your plan and walk according to the path of holiness and joy. This is the way of Jesus. This is the path that he laid out for his disciples. John 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You follow Jesus, you have the light of life. This world is wrong when it says that the path to joy is to resist God's word and God himself and his people. It is wrong to say that. It is joyful and right and good to say, I will hear God's word, I will believe God's word, I will follow God's word, and I will do so in the community of his people. The world is wrong and God is right. Let us tell ourselves that daily. The world is wrong and God is right, no matter how strong the voices are that tell us otherwise. And the end result of this way, God's way, is blessedness. For verse 3 says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit. And verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Not only do we begin to live out fruit in our lives, but we are known by God with an intimate love and a relational connection that far surpasses anything this world can offer. And the entrance point to this superior second way is Jesus himself. Jesus is the all-wise, righteous Savior, the very Word of God, who laid down his life for sinners that they might be freed from the foolish first path and instead might walk according to his light. He shed his blood so that rebels could be forgiven and then be known by God in an intimate way that they might walk with him and actually hear his word and read his word and discern it and apply it and be changed by it. He laid down his life so that the lives of his people might be transformed. So will you follow this second way by placing your trust in Jesus for salvation that you might have his light leading your life? That's certainty number one. There are only two ways to live on this earth. Certainty number two. Certainty number two is happy communion with God is connected to the rejection of this world's false counsel. Happy communion with God is connected to the rejection of this world's false counsel. My friends, you simply will not Know the delights of deep intimacy with God if you fill your minds 
with the counterfeit delights that are commended by the counsels of this world. You will fill up your minds and your hearts with something. You're made to do that. You, you will fill up your minds and your hearts with some form of delights. And you will not know the delights, the superior delights of a deep intimacy with God if your minds are filled with the counterfeit delights that are commended by the counsels of this world. And I would suspect that many of us in this room have had hearts and minds that are filled, even as Christians, with the evil counsels of this world. Consider some of the many ways that our world counsels us to stray from God's path. It disconnects romantic and sexual joy from the marriage relationship that God has devised in this world. Have you found yourself at all beginning to lessen your convictions in those areas? The world will press in and in and in on you to the point that you begin to rub out the distinction. This world relocates ambition and achievement from their proper place of Godward service to the dangerous place of placating human pride and promoting human selfishness. God made us to be achievers. God made us to be people who hunger to accomplish things. And he made us to do those things that we might serve him and his people. And yet this world takes that and twists that and takes us to this dangerous place that seeks to placate our pride and promote human selfishness to make it about us. He's made us an achiever so that I can be achieving for me. That's what the world does. Takes what God has made as good as it is and it twists it. This world, it transforms time and money and entertainment from being useful tools in the service and enjoyment of God to being ultimate ends, whereby people seek their highest delights apart from God. How could we ever hear a message like this and think that Bible meditation is valuable when our minds and our hearts are so filled up by the time and the money and the entertainment and the sex and the pornography and the quest for achievement that so occupies our days? How could we ever value Bible meditation when the counsels of this world are filling up our ears? Whenever God points us in one direction, this world finds a way to point to another. And if we follow such counsel, we will not enjoy the far greater blessedness that God has provided. We will miss out on something so much better. If you think that this book is boring, you're wrong. If you think this book is hard, you're right. But if you think this book is stale or unhelpful or unimportant, you are wrong. I say that in love because I battle that. There are times when I go to his word and I just think, I just don't know. I, I'm just not grasping this. I'm not sure, sure what importance it has. I'm not sure what value it has. I don't want to watch it today. I'd rather just sit and watch baseball why am I going to open up this book? And it's because this book is the word of the glorious God who made me, who shaped me in my mother's womb. He has spoken to me in written word. And I can attest that in those times where the world has seemed far and God's word has been near, the, the delight I've experienced has been the fullest delight I've ever known on this earth. 
And oh, I wish the battle wasn't so strong with this world. Oh, I wish my delight might be more full. Oh, but let me never sacrifice his word and the relationship that is found in it for the things of this world and give up. If we follow such counsel, we will not enjoy the far greater blessedness that God has provided. We will miss out on something that is better. Instead, we must fight. We must fight for joy by constantly, vigilantly, rejecting the false messaging that assaults our ears and our eyes every day. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't look like the world. That's what he's saying. Don't have your life become like the world. Instead, have your mind, with all of its brokenness, all of its problems, have your mind be transformed. How does the human mind, the Christian mind, become transformed? By having our minds saturated with the mind of God found in his word. That's how. There's no voice that speaks in the middle of the night. It is God's word in a book that's found throughout the day. Brothers and sisters, who is conforming you? Is it the Lord and his word, or is it the world? You will not know the better joys of God's blessed fellowship if your answer is the world. That's certainty number two. Last certainty, number three. Happy communion with God is connected to meditation upon his good counsel. Christian, you will know, you will know the delights of deep intimacy with God if your minds are absorbed by the teachings, truths, and promises of his word. You will know, Christian, the delights of deep intimacy with God if your minds are absorbed by the teachings, truths, and promises of his word. God tells us so in verse 2. His delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This psalmist has found his place of joy, and his place of joy is in the meditation upon Scripture. But this meditation, my friends, requires serious reflection. You cannot do it in a passing moment. For you cannot truly appreciate the many-faceted diamond that is God unless you carefully consider the gleam of each and every facet of his word. Therefore, I'm convinced that we must get very busy at two things. That we must get very busy at two things. Number one, we must get very busy or be very serious about slowing life down with its many distractions from God. It is true that we are a busy people. That's not a good thing. <laughs> that is an indictment upon us. When we are super busy and when we are so busy that we don't have time for God, my friends, that is sin. Slowing life down with its many distractions from God is imperative. Meditate 
Day and night, the psalmist says. If we're to do that, then there are going to have to be things sacrificed. I have said numerous times over the four years that I've been your pastor that the main thing I want you to think about when you come to worship is not what you're going to do, but what you're going to get. And I know that everything in church culture right now tells us the opposite, that people should come to church thinking about what they're going to do, who they're going to give to, who they're going to serve to. I don't think that's first. I think the first priority of every Christian in life is to think about what they're going to get from God. Because you have to be fed if you're going to have what you need to be able to feed others. You have to be nourished. You have to be strong if you're going to be able to be strong for others. I think your first priority when you come here each Sunday is to seek the feeding of God's word as it is proclaimed to you. To be hungry to have it. That doesn't mean there aren't times where we serve or we even maybe will be somewhere else during the worship service. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that our number one priority in life is to be filled with God's word. It is to be served by God. It is to know him that we might be able to make him known to other people. And I would even say to you, busy mom, and to you, busy dad, I would say to you, older man or older gal, whose life is filled with many various things, I would say to you, your number one priority of life is to be busy in your relationship with God. It is to have his word be number one in your life so that through your days, you might delight over the meditation of scripture day and night. That you might walk in the path of blessedness and then so be fruitful in your life like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. The tree doesn't become fruitful by being off on its own. The tree becomes fruitful because it's right next to the word. So fill up your own tank. And if there are changes that need to be made, and I would suspect, I know in my life, I would suspect in yours there are changes that need to be made. Slow life down, my friend, with its many distractions from God. Don't give him a mere moment of the day. Give him your day. That's number one. Get busy at two things. I said that's number one. Number two is dedicating time to carefully examine the precious words of God. When the psalmist says that he meditates on the word day and night, understand, that doesn't mean that he's forsaking all all other activities and he's only got a copy of the Torah there and he's reading it day and night, literally. It means that God's word is so prized and appreciated that when he hears it, when he reads it, He absorbs it thoughtfully so that as he goes through his day, it keeps popping up. It keeps nourishing him throughout the day, memorizing it, ingesting it in such a way thoughtfully that it becomes something that he can care with him through that day. So dedicate the time in your day, whether it's in the morning when you first rise or at night before as everyone else goes to bed and before you lay down your head to rest or at midday, wherever you can carve out time, precious time, guarded Time where you can carefully examine the precious words of the Bible. Not merely read it and check off the box and go on to do all the things that are absorbing your mind, but let his word fill your mind. And hopefully next week we'll have some help for that. And when this kind of approach becomes your approach to his word, it will then spill over into lasting spiritual fruit in your life. When you begin to commune with God through Bible meditation, you will begin to show the character of God as you walk with him. 
those who are, are, are minds, who have minds and hearts that are absorbed by his word, they will begin to walk like his word, talk like his word. They will begin to walk and talk like God himself. So, Bible meditation, I'm convinced, is essential for communion with God. I hope the consideration of this important text in Psalm 1 has engaged your mind regarding your need to practice this. And next week we're going to go further as I'll attempt to provide some practical ways that you can indeed meditate upon Scripture. But let me close with this question. Since God has made it possible for you to have an ongoing relationship with Him, will you ask yourself, do I commune with God? Let's pray. Lord, your word is an endless source of joy and strength for your people. Forgive us for seeking to find contentment and nourishment in other places. And help us, our Lord, to find it through the tool that you have provided, through the word that you have spoken, through the book that you have written. We need your help. Would your spirit do a work in the people of Riverside in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.